Okay, well, um, let me pray for us and we will begin. Lord Jesus, we are thankful to be assembled together. We're thankful um, that we have been united and raised with Christ and that um, there is blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, uh, washed over us that allows us to come to you and allows us to have new identities, allows us to live in Holy Spirit power. God, as we, can, if, as we turn from this doctrine of union with Christ to this series on denominations, we pray um, that you would cultivate us a spirit of humility as we evaluate both the good and the bad, understand what these things are uh, so that we could be more mature in our thought here. Uh, and that would pay dividends in our lives and how we interact with other people. As we see how you have worked in various ways throughout the church and how you continue to do so. So we, we, we pray for your blessing on our time and even this series in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. So if you were not here last time, we wrapped up our, our, our series on union with Christ. And we began a new series on, on denominations. And uh, we had a good little discussion toward the latter part of last time about the conceptual problem of denominations, and that's right where we're going to pick up after some vocal lubricant today. Hank, um, there is a conceptual challenge in discussing denominations that you have to do business with before you can just do something like a survey of denominations. The first reason that I mentioned last time is that there are some churches, and I'm saying that in quotes, who would like to be considered a denomination, but who aren't because they're not, we would say, Christian at all. And there'd be, again, we use the Mormons as examples. We use Jehovah's Witnesses as examples. And there are plenty of other, uh, other cults who would like to claim to be a denomination of Christianity um, who actually we would consider not at all. Um, the second is the challenge of uh, talking about denominations, sorry, the second challenge in talking about denominations is if we're going to try to understand them according to official documents and statements and dogma and creeds and confessions, or we're going to understand them in terms of what particular people believe who profess to be or maybe even identify with a particular denomination. And I just want to give you my example again uh, from last time. Uh, this is coming out of the new, new research, relatively new, from Pew Research, and it finds that most self-described Catholics don't believe um, the core teaching of transubstantiation. That is, that the bread and the wine turn in literally to the physical body and blood of Jesus. Okay, it's not a symbol. A miracle happens, and you have the physical body and blood of Jesus under the guise of these uh, physical elements so that it doesn't gross us out and everything. Um, it says, in fact, nearly 7 in 10 Catholics, 69%, say they personally believe that during Catholic Mass, the bread and the wine used in communion are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. Just one-third of U.S. Catholics say they believe that during Catholic Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. Okay? 
In addition to asking Catholics what they believe about the Eucharist, it's the Lord's Supper here, the new survey also included a question that tested whether Catholics knew what the church teaches on the subject anyways. Most Catholics who believe that the bread and wine are symbolic do not know that the church holds that transubstantiation occurs. Overall, 43% of Catholics believe that the bread and wine are symbolic. And also that this reflects the position of the church. 43% believe that the bread and wine are symbolic, and that's what the church teaches. And yet still, one in five Catholics, 22%, reject the idea even though they know that's what the church teaches. Okay, so do you see the problem here? Does that, now we're going to get into Catholicism a little bit more. But the, 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 the Catholic Church has authoritatively and infallibly ruled on these things. Their dogma is very well established from Trent onward. The ordinary magisterium, extraordinary magisterium, we'll talk about it. But this isn't something like up for debate in Catholic theology. The transubstantiation, the Eucharist, that there's a real sacrifice that happens, that it's propitiating for sin, etc. So, so if we're talking about denominations, capital D denominations, we'll get to that distinction in a second, does, does someone like this count as Catholic? Someone who says, well, I'm a Catholic, but I don't believe what the Catholic Church teaches. Okay? I'm a cat and I have a I had a buddy in I had a buddy in high school. I'm a Catholic, but I don't think that the Pope is infallible even when he speaks on matters of uh, faith and doctrine. That is just an explicit rejection of Roman teaching. Um, in fact, uh, currently, and we're, we'll, we'll get into this again, um, there are, there's a huge split in the Catholic, there are huge divisions in the Catholic Church about how to handle LGBTQ issues. And as I was poking around for illustrations this week, lo and behold, there's a whole branch of LGBTQ Catholics. And the Catholic Church has again authoritatively declared that homosexuality is a sin. And yet here are people campaigning for it to be kind of called not a sin. So when we're, looking, when we're talking about who counts as Catholic, or what is Catholic, what does it mean to be Catholic? Are we talking about these documents over here? Do we need to go to the Catholic Catechism and the Council of Trent, or do we need to look at actual Catholics who may not believe those things at all? It's a conceptual problem. So that's the one problem if you're looking at people for denominations, people who identify a certain way. So you might say, uh, and by the way, let me just give you one example that I heard the other day. <laughs> I promise to just make me scratch my eyeballs out. There was a, there was a Presbyterian church planner, and uh, one of my friends was talking to his wife, and they said, we're planning a church. It's a PCA church. Um, it's a, it, she said, it's officially a PCA church, but, it, but it's basically a Reformed Baptist church. So wait, hold on. Which one is it? Well, most people in there are Reformed and Baptistic, but it's a PCA church. So if you're a member there, which one are you? You are under the authority of elders that are under the authority of a, pres a regional presbytery. You are organizationally a Presbyterian. Or, you know, oh, but no, theologically I'm this. So which, so which one are you? It just, it, listen, if you're going to plan a PCA church, just be PCA. You're going to call it a Reformed Baptist church, just be Reformed Baptist. All right, let's just call it what it is. It just scratches it. Anyways, okay, that's not what we're here for. 
Okay, so that's one way to primarily understand denominations is what people believe. Okay, here's the other one. You say, well, listen, because of the examples you just pointed out, that's too fickle. You can't, you can't have a coherent study of denominations based on what people believe because they might not even know what their denomination believes. The much more promising course forward is to look at official documents, it's to look at official creeds, it's to look at official confessions and statements of faith and all the rest. And then too bad if people who you know, cl you know, claim to identify with that denomination don't believe those things, they're just ignorant, ignorant people are everywhere, that doesn't spoil our denominational search. So, so this view says we're not going to primarily focus on what individuals believe to, to understand a denomination. We're going to look at certain more objective documents and creeds and all the rest. What do you think the one, and, and initially that sounds much more promising, I have to say. What's the, what, someone tell me what might be the huge problem with that approach though? Anyone know? Sounds good. What's, well, they might. Well, so yeah, I mean, that might just make the process of the study longer. That might, but, but, but I'm looking, but there's something else that's a, a much bigger problem than even that. You're right. Most churches may have their own thing. Here's the, let me just say, here, here's the problem. The problem of analyzing denominations this way is that there are many denominations that do not have creeds or statements of faith or any official council that started them, or any particular central body of authoritative teaching, or anything like that, that we would almost all consider denominations. What's a great example? There are multiple great examples, but one great example would be the church's Church of Christ. Okay? The Church of Christ, they have explicitly rejected. A their creed is the Bible alone. The Bible alone. And so they have explicitly rejected any kind of central authority, any kind of central creed, any kind of statement of faith, any kind of this and that. The best that, and in fact, um, we have one person in our church who used to go to a Church of Christ in, uh, 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 in, when they were in college. In the Church of Christ, that it was indistinguishable from just a Southern Baptist church. They didn't teach baptismal regeneration. They used instruments and all the rest of it. And it was like, What's going on? My friend at a Laverne Church of Christ in our, our Southeast Pastors Fraternal, um, he, the first thing he told me is, I'm a monergist who thinks that you don't have to be baptized to be saved. This guy understood that God was like, so hold on. And then you go to some churches of Christ, and it's like, whoa, the ultimate legalism. Hardcore baptismal. And so you have these things. So, so what counts as Church of Christ? There isn't any documents. There's not an official, there's no official documents that are going to ground that. We are actually going to run into, I would say shockingly, for most people, the same problem when we look at the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church, what is their creed? The Nicene Creed that you and all you you and I would agree with. And then the first seven ecumenical councils, and at least six of them we would uh, I would imagine most people would, would agree with, uh, for the most part. But that doesn't carve them out, therefore, from a lot of Protestants. And when you look, when people who have looked into orthodoxy, and it's for, for, for some reason it's becoming more and more popular, um, you find it hard. Some people have found it very challenging to figure out exactly what they believe on certain things. Why? Because there is no orthodox version of the Council of Trent documents. There is no catechism of the Orthodox Church. They don't have a 
hierarchical form of government officially at least there's there's in there's they don't have a pope who declares things. They don't have an, a, a magisterium that declares all the doctrine. And so you have different you have different orthodox people who differ on how many books are in the Bible uh, in the Old Testament canon, for example. There are people orthodox who differ. Is the ecumenical patriarch, the patriarch of Constantinople, is that just really an Eastern version of the pope? There's it just there 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 isn't anything that def, there are no documents that definitively and centrally define orthodox theology. And so there, as a result, there is this huge spectrum within it. And so if we go the route of saying how we're going to look at denominations is documents, then all of a sudden, a lot of what everyone considers denominations aren't going to count as denominations. They're not going to be there. Does that make sense? See the challenge there? Finally, let me list at least one more challenge with discussing denominations. And this is what I'm calling the problem of nested or silent denominations. And this occurs when there are differences in theology and practice within a certain denomination, but those people just haven't happened to make a new denomination yet. Okay? Um, case in point, the United Methodist Church. Some of you are unaware that currently we are witnessing the largest church schism in American history in the United Methodist Church over gay marriage, gay clergy, okay? Nearly 25% of the Methodist Church has left and formed the GMC, the Global Methodist Church, because of these issues. And yet, these folks didn't come out of nowhere, okay? They were in the Methodist Church. They were in the Methodist Church. They just hadn't drawn the administrative line yet, right? They were in there. They were all one denomination, and yet, what changed was nothing, except they said, all right, all the folks who agree on all this stuff, except this issue, are going to go this way. That is exactly also what happened with the PCA. Does anyone remember how the PCA, or what was the precipitating cause of the formation of the PCA? It was, but what did the PCUSA do that caused the PCA to break off? Remember? No, it was primarily the ordination of women. Okay? So the PCUSA has the General Assembly, and they said, we are going to start ordaining women. Okay? And there, and there may have been some part of the infallibility as well, but that was the driving issue. And a lot of churches within the PCUSA said, hmm, no, we're not. Nope. Not going to happen. So much for the hierarchy. We're creating a new denomination, the PCA. Those folks were already there, though. Within the PCUSA, you already had both of those things. They had just not been administratively prized apart from each other yet. Okay? Now, why do you think that concept is important when we're talking about denominations? Why do you think that could be important? Okay? Good. So you can't necessarily nail down how many they are because it's gonna, you're going to ask like what counts exactly. Okay. Good. What else? Yeah. And then here. Right. Mm. Great. Exactly. Okay. Very good. So for, depending on how you want to draw the lines, you might end up in a in a, a denomination of one. You know. I agree with 99.999% of this, but I differ on this issue. And so this is, I'm a 
Reformed Baptist star sub one, you know, me, something like that, uh, whatever. Yeah, right here. Yeah, that's a, 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 exactly. Yes, that is exactly right. And again, a case in point, and some of you have had a ton of discussions with Catholics and some of you haven't. But one of the things that Catholics love to tell me is how unified they are. They look at all the Protestant denominations, the thousands of Protestant denominations. Clearly, you can't understand the Bible. I mean, a bunch of smart people are reading it and look at all these differences. What's the unified Protestant view on baptism? There isn't one. What's the unified Protestant view on X, Y, Z? There isn't one. See, we have the Catholic Church. We have this one official teaching. Everybody believes the same thing because the church has guarded the truth because the vicar of Christ on earth, the Pope, inhabits the Sea of Peter and he guards the truth because on this rock I will build my church in apostolic succession and all the rest of it. And so this is the Catholic church is this huge sequoia tree and you're kind of do your Christian life on this little branch that may or may not be legitimate. Okay, so that's kind of the, that's the rhetoric. That's the rhetoric. Um, but here's the thing. Anyone who actually lists, kind of gets into the Catholic issues knows Catholics disagree on so much. So there is so much disagreement. And there is no... Yes, sir. Oh, oh, great, right. Um, there is so much disagreement. And there is no better example than the, what the Pope recently just gave us. Okay, so some of you are aware that the Pope just recently said that clergy can now bless same-sex couples, but they have to be clear that it isn't marriage or something like that. They have to be clear that what's going on isn't marriage, and yet, you know, they say anyone can receive a blessing, and so, and there's been wildly different responses. The LGBTQ part of the Catholic Church, which again, just to me, is just such an enigma, uh, given how they have ruled on things, is like, yes, this is great progress. We're almost there. You know, we're really getting there. Other people are like, oh my goodness, what's what's going on here? What's going on here? And the bishops are divided with regards to how they are actually going to do it. And some of the, bishops, the Catholic bishops are saying, we're just not going to do that. And the, especially the bishops in Africa, by the way, and, and the bishops in Africa, the Pope called a special case. I'm not sure the optics of that one were great, but he called it a special case because of their culture. And he said the bishops that aren't on board with this, after a while, they will be. So you have folks who are Catholic, but they disagree about all these things within Catholicism. You might see you might wonder in, in see in Protestantism, what would those things become? They would become a different denomination. So all of these things are nested within Catholicism, but because of their larger theology, they can't break off and form another denomination. Because the way they tell their own story is that the church is infallible and guards the tradition and authoritatively interprets the Bible. So it's too bad for them. You just kind of have to hope for change and hope for progress. And even the Pope uh, recently talked about how theology progresses, which is in one sense true and in one sense from the standpoint of what he mentioned, very scary. Um, okay, so there's a lot of conceptual challenges here. Does that make sense? Why there's some conceptual challenges in discussing what denominations are? So if that's the case, how are we going to look at it? 
how are we going? What, which side are we going to choose in terms of pressing in here? I'm going to, I'm sorry? Leave it like it is. Yeah, well, we can, you know, leave certain things like they are, but I'm afraid we've got to take a little, uh, one further step in order to kind of move forward. And that is, we're going to take a traditional approach. We're taking a traditional approach to denominations. What is that? I've got it up here. It's, we're going to understand denominations as distinct systems of beliefs and practices that are understood in virtue of being historically founded or downstream from specific people, theological statements, or movements, okay? And this is going to allow us to look at uh, churches holding to certain documents and people who inhabit those kinds of churches' traditions together as part of a historical stream. So, so what this allows us to do is say, okay, here's this denomination, here's this group of people, here's this whatever, all right? How do we explain them as being, what are they historically downstream from? There is a tradition that they are on the tail end of. What is that? That will allow us a great combination of objectivity in looking at historical facts and documents while also allowing latitude, okay? So think of it as a, um, think of it as a stream, a historical stream with tributaries that go off of it and such. When we look at it, we're going to understand denominations as, okay, where do they come from and what is the general course of how it got there, regardless of what the contemporary state of it is? What do we make of it historically as it, what do we attribute it to? What is it downstream from? All right, well, we are obviously not going to look at all the denominations, and we're going to look at denominations under kind of a big D denomination and lowercase d denominations. Big case, big case, I'm sorry, uppercase, wow. Uppercase. Uh, uppercase D denominations, there's only three, okay? Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, Protestantism. That's it, okay? Capital D denominations. Lowercase D denominations is something that is generally reserved to describe um, subsets of Protestantism, okay? And so we're going to look at Roman Catholicism, we're going to look at Orthodoxy, and then we'll look at eight or so of the most prominent uh Protestant denominations. So what is my goal for the series? A couple goals for this series. The first is to make an understanding, uh, a given understanding, excuse me, of what makes each denomination unique for better and for worse. I'm not someone, if you know me, who likes to just get up and criticize, criticize, criticize. I have, there's plenty of that to do, and especially when we look at Rome, and I would say orthodoxy as well. But I also want to point out the good when I can find it, okay? I don't want to just be someone who loves to, to, to criticize and just gets existential energy from tearing things down. Um, I do want to try to give uh, a credit where credit is due and look at good things even when they come um, with bad. The second is a more ecumenical spirit and charitable disposition towards those in other denominations. Listen, uh, the truth is, if you are, say, Reformed and Baptistic, if you're a Reformed Baptist, you're a Reformed Baptist because you think that's right. You know, you think that God is sovereign in salvation, um, and, and depending on what you mean by Reformed Baptist, uh, you might think, well, no, it's the 1689 Confession, that's right, you might think this or that. But here's the thing, God has a, thankfully, a much broader picture of what he's doing in the church than, you know, the 1689 Confessional Reformed Baptist churches. 
Okay? It doesn't matter if you think this per- these people are wrong on this area of doctrine or the other or the other. Okay? The, the, God, is doing, God is doing far more. He is working far more than just our particular confessional tradition. And so in looking at some of these things, I want to try to draw out an appreciation for what God is doing, even as we look at particular disagreements. And then finally, as a result of these things, I want to uh, hopefully develop a particular appreciation for the Baptist tradition. Uh, the Baptist tradition, particularly confessional Baptists, okay, confessional Baptists that are able to trace, again, their history, not as something that just popped up, but are going to be able to trace it back to the Protestant Reformation in uh, things, in documents like the 1689, which is the grandson of the Westminster Confession of Faith, okay? So here's how we're going to proceed. First, I'm going to try to give a brief history of each denomination The second, we're going to talk about how are they organized? How is this particular denomination structured? What does their leadership look like? Third, what do they believe about authority and tradition? What do they believe about authority and tradition? Where does the authority lie? What is the role of tradition? And you're going to see that that many denominations, and certainly the Uh, uh, uppercase D denominations very much differ on exactly the role of tradition, the authority of tradition, who gets to interpret the tradition even, and so that'll be an important question. What what does the denomination believe about justification? What you're going to find is not only do people uh, uh, understand, uh, have different understandings of justification, um, uh, well, let me me, me rephrase that. not only are we going to find that there are different understandings of what it takes to be justified, but we're going to have some people who just understand justification to be something almost totally different. Okay, like a totally different concept that you and I just generally would not even think of, um, and is a concept that maybe just fades into the background. Like, for example, in orthodoxy, justification is just like not a thing. It's just not a category for them. And they're just not interested in, in, in justification. It's not... It's not the organizing question of orthodox theology. How do I become right before God? It's like, what? That's not the question they're at. And for you and I, they're like, how could you not be asking that question? And when we get there, you'll see why. But for them, justification is something that, in many cases, depending on which theologian you talk to, it was a Jewish, something that was due, had to do with Jewish uh, uh, marks of distinctiveness. They follow kind of the new perspective on Paul. Justification was a Jewish problem doesn't really apply to us, okay? What we're interested in is theosis, okay? Becoming God, becoming like God, not, not literally becoming divine. Um, and so the question for organizing question there is, what does God require of me? How do I live faithfully? How do I live faithfully? That's the organizing question, all right? Well, so what do they believe about justification? What do they believe about the process of sanctification, and how that differs from justification, particularly when we look at the Lutheran tradition. The Lutheran tradition has a very, very different understanding of sanctification that you and I would have. Very different understanding of, of, of sanctification, progressive sanctification explicitly, than you and I will have. And then you'll have some of these traditions that combine justification and sanctification in ways that you and I would think be uh, problematic. What do they believe about the canon of Scripture? Okay. That is to say, I mean, I primarily here what I'm thinking of is, you know, what books, what books do they think are in, in the canon? And then finally, what do they believe about 
the sacraments. What do they believe about the sacraments? Okay, any questions before I get us kicked off with... Did y'all like that kick? I mean, it was kind of lame, but it's a good illustration. All right. Any any questions about whether it's denominations, some of the conceptual challenges, um, how we're going about this before I move into this? All right. Oh yeah. Oh yes, ma'am. Apologize. Yes. Yeah, so Catholicism, so I said Catholicism never spun off? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly when we get to the Protestant Reformation, there's going to be a lot of spinoff. What I guess I meant was that Catholicism doesn't have internal denominational subsets. Yeah, so it's not like, yeah, historically, certainly, everything that came out of the Protestant Reformation came out of the Catholic Church. But here's my, but here, I guess here's one of the things I'm saying. If some people have asked, well, how could the Catholic Church have been the only church for a thousand years or whatever? Listen, folks, I mean, if 69% of people don't believe what the Catholic Church is now who identifies as Catholic, do you think in a time where there was no... Uh, before the official documents of the church were even made, before there was media, before there was any of that, that the percentage was higher? No. These people came out of Catholicism. And so Catholicism pretends a unity, but really it's internally splintered. Okay? And in fact, even, and we'll, we'll get to this, I am, I'm jumping ahead in this part now, but you end up with the same, they end up with the same problem because you have the church who will infallibly rule on something or you'll have infallible documents. But guess who goes and interprets those? People. People who aren't infallible. And then you get an infallible interpretation, and guess what people do? They have to go interpret the interpretation. So there is, I mean, the idea of individual interpretation, you cannot get away from. All right? It doesn't matter. Even if you have an infallible interpreter or infallible decrees, you're still going to have people interpreting it. And the interpretations of the interpretations, etc. Thank you for the question. Allowed me to clarify. Do you have a follow-up there? Uh, follow yeah. Uh, there is a portion of the Catholic Church that will only uh, pray in Latin. Yes. So they're, they're underground. They don't pop up very often. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You do have some people who hold to the Tridentine Latin Mass. Uh, but they, they're going to share basically the same, in terms of uh, the theology of the Catholic Church, they're going to hold to the same theology but they are liturgically are going to adopt the Latin, um, the Latin mass. Um, you also have, there is one small sect, which people would say is not Catholic, but of course, this is the whole problem, of sede vacantists. Anyone heard that before? Sede vacantists, like Jerry Maddox. Sede vacantists are Catholics who believe because of a variety of things that the, the, the current pope, like many in history that everyone has agreed upon, including Catholics, is an anti-pope. He's a fraudulent pope. Okay? So the, the, the current pope is an anti-pope. Uh, and that there is, for that reason, no mass right now. There is no real mass, and the church is in exile. 
and and you know mainstream Catholics, and that it is a very small sect of folks. They just want to say, well, those people don't count as Catholic. I said, well, but who do you get, who do you get to? You know, there's been anti popes in history. Even your own the even your own Catholic historians acknowledge that as popes dueled and all the rest of it. Um, and so uh, 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 they're not as unified as they would like us to believe. Okay. Anything else before I proceed onward here? Were you able to find it? I don't know if you were looking at it. Were you able to find any clarification about whether... Uh, okay. 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 Um, the history of the Roman Catholic Church, along with orthodoxy, is going to be the same up to a point, and that is for no other reason that from a macro level, from a macro level, there is only one very wide unified stream. So think of like a very large river, which to be clear does not mean that everyone agreed on everything. And folks, you don't have to get to early church history to see that. We just went through 1 John. Okay? But 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 so you see you had people the only two categories for a long time were people in the stream, people out of the stream, heretics. That was it. You had a super, super wide stream, we'll say, with a lot of aquatic life <laughs> swimming in it. Okay? But here's the thing. For the longest time, all of the aquatic life was swimming broadly in the same stream, and they all thought that everyone was in the stream, okay, except for the people who everyone knew was not in, in, in the stream. Okay? And so um, despite a lot of disagreement, despite a lot of aquatic life, there was kind of one undifferentiated, at least formally, stream. Okay? As I said from the very beginning, there has been heresy. There has been heresy. And at every stage of history, church leaders have had to say, okay, what are we going to do to guard the truth? And we have to confess that after, the, after John dies in, in, in the 90s, and you have no more apostles left, the 12 are gone, you have an, you, 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 that's the last eyewitness to Jesus, gone. So the church leaders, what did they do? They schemed. Man, if you had, if you had, a, if you had heresy when people were opposing the apostle John, how quickly do you think you were going to get this? There, were no, there was no formal scribes, okay? The, the Bible wasn't being copied in, uh, 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 by professional scribes until after the Edict of Milan, right? Then you had scriptoriums and, su and such. Um, you didn't have, people didn't, weren't walking around with Bibles. Re I mean, think how, think how um, right the, op the opportunity was to just develop wrong beliefs about Jesus and about the gospel. They said, and, and then even if and some of them may be heretical, some of them not. But either way, I would say that the church took three practical steps to guard the truth. The first one is a hierarchical church government. They said, listen, in order to guard the truth, you got to have a chief and some Indians. All right. You got to have people in certain regions who have known the or are particularly mature or know the gospel particularly well to oversee the teaching at these particular churches. We've got to scheme a little bit here. We've got to play as a team. We've got to play as a team, and there's got to be some people who are over these people and some people who are over these people and over to give, to give oversight 
to different regions. Remember, there were no seminaries. There are no apostles. There was no collected Bible at the time. Okay? As a practical matter, you say, okay, we need oversight of these things. We got, we got a lot of Christians. We got a lot of people teaching. We need some oversight. So that was step one, this part of regulating and guarding the truth through this regionally tiered leadership as a strategy to guard the gospel. The second is the canon, okay? And the third, council and creeds. So bringing all of the inspired documents together and formally recognizing it, though it occurred over a period of time because of, of, of distribution, was a practical apologetic strategy to guard the church, okay? That is why we have written scripture instead of merely spoken word. We see the precedent for this in the Old Testament. Even Jeremiah, as I continue to go through it, write this down. We learned about it in Daniel. Write this down for future generations. are going to need this. There is something about being written that holds a certain sense of objectivity that can be looked at, that can be appealed to. But when you had all those inspired documents circulating, and, and when I say uh, uh, the copies and copies of those circulating, what they said is, you know what we need to do? We need to get all of them and put them in one codex. We need to put them together, and we need to make sure people know which documents are the inspired documents so they're not reading the third gospel of whoever, uh, some apocryphal gospel written by somebody, and thinking that that is how they should be doing the Christian life. And so collating those documents together was a practical strategy. Um, to guard the truth. And then finally, you have councils and creeds. And so on important issues, the church, understood as this very wide stream with a lot of aquatic life, come together and through their, at least their teaching bishops, not the actual, not the actual folks. And they, they came together in a series of councils. And you know them, Chalcedon, Nicaea, you've heard some of these councils, where they clarified very important doctrinal issues. There, there were seven so-called ecumenical councils. Um, th there's some discussion. Some Protestants disagree about what the seventh one was. It was ended up being called the one, the one that is traditionally associated as the seventh ecumenical council. Most Protestants reject because um, it has to do with icons. The what was supposed to be the seventh ecumenical council, which um, which uh, uh, um, declared icons to be impermissible, was later called the Robbers Council because they didn't have the right church leaders there. And so the Seventh Ecumenical Council said, nope, we're going to go with icons are a good thing. So the vast majority of, of Protestants reject the, the Seventh Ecumenical Council. But um, you have councils where these matters of who is Christ, you have particularly Christ in the Trinity that get nailed out in these councils articulating what we see in the scripture and was passed on from apostolic tradition. There's no doubt about that. And so you have these creeds as well that end up being these early primitive doctrinal statements that, that kind of summarize the core elements of the gospel that people could remember even in the absence of being written down. And that came to be known as the rule of faith. You might have heard that before, the regula fide, the rule of faith. This is the first way in which tradition uh, this, this is the first, um, this is what tradition referred to at first, the tradition. What it referred to is what was summarized in the Apostles' Creed. 
the content that was summarized in the Nicene Creed. When people talk about the tradition delivered, the rule according to the rule of faith, that is what they meant, okay? So you have three practical steps taken. Hierarchical, church government, okay? Uh, um, uh, uh, and, and there was, when I say, it's it actually a little bit misleading to say that because it didn't go up like a pyramid and had one person at the top. That's not what I meant, okay? So hierarchical might be a, uh, there was hierarchical, but it wasn't, I don't know the right word for this. My vocabulary is not wide enough. It was hierarchical. There was some, you know, but it didn't end up the top. There wasn't a point like the Roman Catholic Pope or something like that. That's not how it started. There were major major bishops and major cities that exercised influence over their region as they worked together in this large stream. Okay, it was a teamwork, team effort. Okay? Okay, so you have this three-legged stool. So we're zooming out. There emerged five big-time bishops, five big-time bishops uh, in the hierarchical part over certain areas. So that was bishops in Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, and Constantinople. This was called the Pentarchy. And for 800 years or so, these patriarchs and these creeds and the New Testament canon we currently possess all swam in the same stream despite a lot of different wildlife, all right? A bunch of aquatic wildlife in the same large stream, but that all changed decisively and formally in 1054 because of what? Someone tell me, what happened? 1054, the Great Schism, and what happened? Why was the, what was the primary reason for that? The Filioque Clause, yes. They, so adding that into the, the Roman bishop, wanted to add that the, the, the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, okay, into the Nicene Creed. Um, and he, it was, that was the first issue. The second issue closely related to it was the ultimacy of the Roman bishop. Uh, the bishop of Rome said, no, 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 no. I have the ability to do this, okay? I should have more authority. It was, it was an assertion of the authority of the Roman bishop. As a result, all of the other patriarchs, ex they broke off, and then they mutually excommunicated each other. Those excommunications have since been lifted, uh, but they mutually excommunicated each other. And so you had Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Constantinople that ended up forming the Orthodox Catholic Church. And then you had the Western Roman bishop and those around him that formed the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, um, the Catholic law, uh, the, the Catholic Church would chug along for another few hundred years, and there would be some interesting developments that we don't have time to cover until the 16th century, when this very pesky man named Martin Luther decided to shake some things up in what we would call the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation is fine as a descriptor as far as it goes, but really what's more accurate is to say reformations because the, it happened in different ways, okay? It happened in different places, okay? The Reformation in Switzerland was not quite like the Reformation in Germany. Uh, it took different shapes, but nevertheless, you had this broad consensus pulling away from the Catholic Church, not because it was trying to do something new, but because they believed that the Catholic Church had taken a wrong turn, and they were trying to go back. They understood the Reformation as renewal, not as novelty, okay? And as a result of the Protestant Reformation, there was a kind of counter-Reformation, and but in 25 sessions, over a period of about... Um, 
about, I guess it's 18 years or so, the Council of Trent met in session in response to the Protestant Reformation, and it is in the Council of Trent where the Catholic Church outlined and defined its most dogmatic and extensive and exhaustive theology. There would be catechisms introduced into the Catholic Church with the definitive version um, released actually as early as, or as, as recent as 1992, which is officially sanctioned by John Paul, uh, John Paul II. Uh, that was a, a consider a landmark achievement. Now, that is a remarkably brief history of the Roman Catholic Church, but the idea is, if, you just, if you're just going to forget everything else, okay, three-legged stool, practical strategies, hierarchy, canon, uh, councils and creeds to preserve the tradition, all right? After you get to about 80, in the 800s, you had the Photian Schism, but in 1054, at least formally, the western and the eastern parts of the church split, and they would never be this. They would never come back together. Okay, the the the, the excommunications have been formally lifted as kind of like a, a pardon from hundreds of years ago, kind of to save optics. But those churches are not in communion. The Orthodox Church does not recognize the the Pope as the Pontiff, Supreme Pontiff, or anything like that. And by the way, this is a little bit of an overstatement, but the Orthodoxy really, in many ways, sat out the Protestant Reformation. Okay. I mean, when you think about the Protestant Reformation, you know, have you ever thought, well, what about how, where does the Orthodox Church show up in here? Well, they didn't really play nearly a prominent a role in the, in, the, in the Reformation because the Reformation was about Rome and, and what Rome was doing and, and, and Roman Catholic doctrine and indulgences and Tetzel and all the rest of it. Uh, that really uh, was the catalyst. And the Orthodoxy over here, who didn't recognize a pope anyways, They've got a different number of sacraments, just a different ball game, and so it's. Not, I'm not saying there was no uh, uh, that they weren't involved at all, but in one sense, they didn't play nearly as large a role in the Protestant Reformation. Okay, well, I'm one minute over, but that gives you a brief history of kind of how the Catholic Church happens. There is a split, then things are defined definitively by the Council of Trent, dogmatically, exhaustively. Catechisms start to be produced, and you have the infallible. Uh, 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 church dogma laid out. Uh, and the last, in fact, papal infallibility uh, was only established in the 1950s. The early 1950s is when papal infallibility was established. You have doctrine that continues to develop, but it is guarded and shepherded by the church that infallibly leads it into the tr truth and, and in their understanding infallibly interprets the scripture and the tradition. So that is what we're looking at. Next time when we come back, we will go through at least half of this list, hopefully more, of Roman Catholicism, get, hopefully get mostly through it. Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy will take a little bit longer than the Protestant denominations because we're less familiar with it, okay? But that's okay. The other denominations will not take quite as long, but I'm hoping to devote at least one full um, session and perhaps a half of another one uh, to Roman Catholicism, and then we'll move into Orthodoxy. Let's pray. God, again, we're thankful to be able to study these things. We pray that you would give us sharp minds and humble hearts as we evaluate them, um, as we uh, find ourselves revisiting our own convictions and doctrinal truths, um, as we find ourselves uh, being thoughtfully critical but also celebrating the good. We pray that uh, this, would, this, this series would be a blessing, that you would sharpen our minds as a result, and that our hearts would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.